Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the History of England, episode 24, Revolt of the Earls. I need to start with a few thank yous, firstly to Peter, who got in touch, very worried to tell me that I'd messed up last week's podcast by forgetting the start and end music. Thanks, Peter, for your concern, and sorry, everyone else, for my rubbish quality control. And then to respond to some comments, uh, Martin asked me to plug my website, which is great, because I'd really like you all to go there. So it's at historyofengland.ipad.com. And then there was Catherine, who asked what all the birds are. Sadly, Catherine, they're nothing very exotic. Blackbirds, robins, blue tits, the odd wood pigeon, and maybe a red kite if you're lucky. The thing is, I'm in a small shed in the garden. How sad is that? This also means, by the way, that it's really difficult to stop this booming quality to the podcast. And thanks to my brother and Pete for suggesting lining the shed with egg boxes. Even I'm not that sad. But fellow podcasters out there, any tips and hints about the booming thing would be really gratefully received. But anyway, on to the history for this week. We left our William last week in 1070, probably feeling that he'd seen the last of any pesky rebellions disturbing his peace, and that he could get back to the land he loved, i.e. Normandy. Because one thing to bear in mind is that Normandy was home, not just for William, but also for all his Norman barons. England was where they'd made their riches, but Normandy was what they really cared about, and that'll remain the case for a good while yet. And William did have a bit of time to indulge himself in one of his favourite pastimes, i.e. making money. He grumpily realised that the old English lords had stashed all their spare cash in the churches, so he ordered that the churches and monasteries be taxed and searched for the thane's treasure. There was just nowhere to hide for the English. But sadly for poor old William, he was to be tested again before he and his boys could finally chillax, as my daughter might hideously say. 
There's a game my kiddies used to play when they were small and cute, which involved a plastic hammer and some moles in holes. Every time you smacked one of them, another one popped up elsewhere. The fun we had. Well, it was a bit like this for William. In the West, Edric the Wild, who had been a thorn in the Norman side, was enticed back to the side of light and truth, and pardoned by William. All over England, the pain of dealing with new masters and new traditions continued day by day. The murder and fine enforced by William kind of sums up the pain going on. This fine ruled that if an unknown man was found dead, the neighbouring villages were liable for a fine, unless they could prove he was English, not French. This is serious stuff, isn't it? A pretty clear indication that the French are strangers in a hostile land. Meanwhile, in the mouth of the River Humber in the north of England, King Svein of Denmark had not been impressed with the performance of his war leader Osborne in the 1069 rebellion. Investment, 240 ships full of men, result, zip, rien, de nada. So he'd taken over personal command in May 1070 and decided to hook up with one of the British folk heroes, Harrowwood the Wake. He had some fun. Together, Harrowwood and the Danish king robbed Peterborough Abbey. They then holed up in Ely, with Harrowwood claiming that he was just trying to save the treasure from the Normans. The Danes, however, saw it differently. Svein had come to realise that taking England away was not the simple thing it seemed. So he loaded up his ships with the treasure of Peterborough and set sail for Denmark. Meanwhile, the earls Morcar and Edwin were beginning to learn to their cost that there was just no way back for them. In 1066, they'd essentially decided that they'd play with William, and that if they were nice to him, maybe he'd reward them. But William had no interest whatsoever in any of that. He'd relied on the English bishops to help him rule, and stripped Edwin and Morcar of any real political power, keeping them close by him at court so we could see what they were doing. By 1071, they'd just had enough of this now. They had a decision to make. Either they went for a life of useless leisure, or they tried to regain their power by turfing out William. Now I know what I'd have done, but they chose differently. Edwin headed off for Scotland to try and stir up King Malcolm. Morcar headed off for the area that now looked most promising for revolution, i.e. Harrowwood the Wake and the Fens, and Morcar reached there in 1071. Edwin unfortunately was not so lucky, since he was killed by his followers before he could reach Scotland. I'd love to know why, but that's simply all we know. He never made it. Now, when I was a lad at school, we did loads of work on Harrowwood. We learnt all about the fens and how back then there were a mass of impenetrable marshes. We learnt about Harrowwood as a hero who'd held out for ages with loads of clever tricks, a sort of 11th century Robin Hood. Sadly, I now learn the truth is a bit more prosaic than that. But anyway, it's true that Harrowwood kept things going for about a year, but actually, Earl Morcar joining him in April 1071 was the beginning of the end. Because William took notice of him, and he took his army to Cambridge, built a big causeway to give him access to Harrowwood's island stronghold, and that, essentially, was that. Harrowwood fled into the fens and into legend, while Morcar had to surrender. He was sent to Normandy and imprisoned, and this time for good. The fall of the earls pretty much completed the ruin of the English nobility. We've just got Wolfie off to go, really. William now turned his attention to the leaders of the English church. William, at this stage, was still playing ball with the papacy, who, as you'll remember, had helped his claim to England. In the spring of 1070, he invited three papal legates over to England to do his dirty work for him, and the result was an Episcopal bloodletting. Five English bishops were dumped from their post. Stigand was finally kicked out of his job as the Archbishop of Canterbury and replaced by Lanfranc of Beck, the famous churchman we'd heard about a couple of weeks ago from Normandy. 
Monasteries fared a little bit better, but still, by the end of William's reign, only the minor abbeys had an English abbot left. So here's another source of friction in the land that would have continued to rub the English nose in the English mire. Norman habits were brought over into the English church. For example, there's a right old Barney in the abbey at Glastonbury, when the new Norman abbot tried to get rid of the monk's traditional Gregorian chant, to the point of setting his soldiers on the English monks and killing a couple of them. Lanfranc and William actually made a very good pair. They were determined to modernise the English church. It's clear that William was genuinely committed to improving the running of the church, and this made Langfranc very willing to toe the royal line. Any of you who suffered me and my brother's supplementary episode will know that William established the practice of separate ecclesiastical courts for the very first time in England. Church synods were pretty much the same as previously, but were run more often in the 1072 to 1086 period than they had been previously. These synods were summoned by the king, and he usually attended. William was keen to reform the church, but every bit as keen to make sure that they recognised where their power came from, i.e. not God, but William. The changes Lanfranc and William tried to bring about were similar to those of Dunstan and Edgar way back when. The duties of bishops were redefined, the clergy were told to stop having sex and not get married, which they largely ignored. There were some changes in the monasteries, a tightening up of discipline, the downgrading of uncouth English monks, and the revision of some rules and that sort of thing. More directly visible was the physical environment. The seats of one-third of all bishops were moved from their old Anglo-Saxon centres into the new towns. The Archbishop of Canterbury is made the supreme church authority set over York, which had previously not been the case. And at the same time, all the old Anglo-Saxon buildings began to be swept away, to be replaced by those big, massive, impressive stone Norman cathedrals that I absolutely love, but which at the time must have been about as alien as a Dalek. One peculiar tradition that did survive was the English monastic cathedral. Kim mentioned these to me in a tweet a while ago, and I was really interested to read that the monastic cathedral is an almost entirely English phenomenon, with only two of them known outside England. Well, there you go then. Anyway, they tickled Lanfranc's fancy, and I doubt Lanfranc's fancy was tickled very often, to be honest, so this is of note. All these changes were not on paper that radical, but the attitude to monasticism definitely changed. Leading Anglo-Saxon clerics had always had an undue proportion of monks, and monasticism had a particular hold as a destination site, for example, for ageing nobles and even kings. This was no longer the case in quite the same way in Norman England. The church after the Normans feels different than did the Anglo-Saxon church. The Anglo-Saxon church and state felt very, very intertwined. So, for example, the king would ask church leaders advice about appointments, whereas in Norman times the Norman kings are very much more arbitrary and independent. Norman kings really liked to emphasise their authority over the church and to make sure they were aware of the feudal duties owed to them by the church leaders. In Anglo-Saxon England, all law, both church and lay law, went through the Hundred Court. But now in Norman England, there are two systems, one for canon law and one for normal law. All of this meant more separation and in the end it led to more conflict between church and state, though nothing like the same level as we see in the Holy Roman Empire with the papacy. And when it came to the papacy, William was really, really keen to make doubly sure that the English church looked to him and not to the Pope. The Pope, meanwhile, in the form of the great reformer Hildebrand, or Gregory VII, as he was known, was looking for something in return for all the favours he and his predecessor had done to help William win his throne. The papacy had supported William in the hope that he would help them reduce the influence of the laity in the running of the church in England. 
and that he had implemented the kind of reforms they were looking to implement everywhere else. And they even harboured a hope that William would acknowledge the Pope as his feudal overlord for England. How they ever imagined that was ever going to happen, I shall never know. There is a quite delicious letter that survived from William to the Pope in 1080. Gregory has sent his legate, Hubert, to whip William back into line and to pay up for all those favours William owes him. William is just having absolutely none of it. Here's an abstract. Your legate has admonished me to do fealty to you. I have never desired to do fealty, nor do I wish to now, for I promise to do neither. It's a quite simple, straightforward, naff-off letter. Things continue to get frostier between William and the papacy, now that William's got what he wants. And the popes at this stage are embroiled in a major struggle with the Holy Roman Empire, and they simply can't afford to take on England as well. So this policy of independence is maintained for the rest of the conqueror's reign, and well into that of his son. One of the things that did work really well under William was that the king and the archbishop worked very closely together, something that was unfortunately not to survive the death of Lanfranc. After William waved goodbye to the papal legates then, he turned his attention to the trouble around the fringes of his empire. William faced trouble on his external borders as well as within the kingdom. He was basically surrounded by jealous competitors looking for a bit of his big new kingdom to fall into their laps. On the continent, the French king, the Count of Flanders and the Count of Anjou were all looking to win back land they thought was theirs and to put this Norman upstart right back in his place. The problems William faced all his life, charging all over the place, putting out the forest fires, were to be repeated for the next 150 years until John finally let the side down and there was no empire to look after anymore. In Flanders, to the north of Normandy, he'd married a sister to Count Baldwin and that had meant that Flanders was on his side. But Baldwin died in 1070 and this set up a pretty major family quarrel. Baldwin's son Arnulf was chucked out by his uncle Robert Le Frisson. Arnulf was then supported by the French king Philip I and a group of Norman knights who invaded Flanders, but unfortunately all rather unsuccessfully. The net result was regime change in Flanders, leaving a count in control hostile to Normandy. Robert Le Frisson married his daughter to Knut IV of Denmark, the same Knut who had harboured designs on the English throne. And he supported William's son Robert Curtos when he rebelled against his father, anything basically to make William's life a bit more difficult. Meanwhile to the east you've got the King of France, Philip I. Philip I, nicknamed the Amorous for his famous passion for Petrade de Montfort, wife of Folk of Anjou, reigned for about 48 years. And for all of those years, he's doing everything he can to undermine William and get whatever land he can get back, or at very least establish exactly who's boss. He'd not really got the grunt to take William on mano a mano. This is the period when the lands of the French monarchy are at their smallest extent. But he joins enthusiastically with all of William's enemies. In 1079, for example, he helps out the Bretons at Dole, inflicting on William one of his very rare defeats. He also spent a deal of time encouraging men like Edgar Atheling and Robert Curtos to rebel against their king and father. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
And then to the south you've got Maine and Anjou. Maine is a constant battlefield in the struggle between the Dukes of Normandy and the Counts of Anjou. In the 1050s, William had managed to establish a degree of control there. But in 1068, a new Count, Folk le Rechin, took over in Anjou. The result was a series of revolts against the Normans that never allowed them to settle down. So look, you get the idea. A feudal empire separated by the channel with a patchwork of kings and counts struggling to be the boss. It all meant a busy life for your feudal kings, William no less than anyone. And in general, he was to find that as Norman power waxed in England, it waned in France, though not dramatically so for a while yet. But in 1072, it was Scotland on William's mind. King Malcolm had married Edgar the Atheling's sister Margaret and was always looking to raid into England and maybe hang on to the bit here and there. Edgar the Atheling was up there, a constant potential threat to England's stability. And already William's latest choice of Earl Gospatrick had shown himself incapable of defending the North on his own. When Malcolm had invaded the previous year, Gospatrick had let him raid to his heart's content while he took himself off to raid into Cumbria, then still not part of England but part of Scotland. And of course he blotted his copybook by joining the revolt in the north, and so he was probably nearing the outtray anyway. Never one to avoid a challenge, William headed north with his army to do a bit of boil lancing. He advanced on two fronts, from west and east, and Malcolm retreated before him, but eventually decided that he had no choice but to talk. And so at Abernethy, Malcolm did homage to William. He agreed to be his best buddy forever, and to show Edgar the door. William was content that he'd cauterised that particular boil, but he shouldn't have been. The history of Scottish-English relationships is littered with broken promises on both sides, and in 1079, Malcolm will be back happily raiding again. Ho-hum. William, meanwhile, sacked Gus Patrick and replaced him with Waltheoff. Although Waltheoff had been a bad boy in 1068, William figured that he was now a reformed character. After all, he was now married to William's niece, Judith, and he did have that ancestry from Seaward of Northumbria, so hopefully he'd be up to the job. Gospatrick and Edgar, meanwhile, fled to Flanders, now that the court of Scotland was no longer open to them. Gospatrick died in 1073 in poverty, but Edgar had a long and colourful, if slightly ineffectual, career ahead of him. For the moment, he sat on another of William's borders, with Robert, Count of Flanders, plotting his vengeance. And then in 1074, he headed off back to Scotland, at which point Philip of France made him an interesting offer. He offered him a castle in the French part of the Vexin, so that he could sit there and raid into Normandy and cause William as much trouble as he liked. At the risk of boring you, let me remind you that the Vexin is that area on the Seine east of Rouen, the strategic key to Normandy. It's got a Norman bit and a French bit. OK, so Edgar set off, but he was immediately shipwrecked on the coast of England, and that spelt trouble, with many of his men being hunted down by the Normans. Edgar slunk back to Scotland, where his brother-in-law Malcolm sat him down for a family chat. Look, Eddie, he said, why not bury the hatchet with William? And in fact, that's what happened. Edgar and William agreed to patch it up. Edgar had to give up any claim to the throne, while William, on his part, would stop trying to hunt him down and kill him. So for the next ten years, Edgar presumably lives a relatively peaceful life. It's an interesting reflection on the pattern that William follows. Brutal repression, combined with a bit of judicious deal-making. William now had a right to expect a bit of a break, surely, but in point of fact, 1075 saw the last real threat to his authority, the so-called Revolt of the Earls. In a way, this revolt is a bridge between the Old World, the English resistance to the rule of the Conqueror, 
and the future in the form of feudal rebellion, because this rebellion would include both Norman and English lords. As an aside, it's worth noting that dissent is not easy in the feudal kingdom William had set up. Not that disagreeing with a king was ever a safe or wise thing to do, but William's conquest made it now particularly perilous. His land settlement had ensured that all land, all authority, more than ever came from the king. So, you know, in a few hundred years, when we get to things like Charles I and the divine right of kings, well, there's no messing around with that kind of thing in Norman England. The king owns it all. Doesn't need divine right, even though he has a bit of borrowed divine authority. It all comes back to William. It is true to say that, to a degree, the concept of consultation did live on. That concept which had been represented in Anglo-Saxon England by the Witan, and now in Norman England, was represented by the Magnum Concilium. But essentially, if a feudal lord had a problem with a king, rebellion was pretty much his only recourse, which is one of the reasons why we see so much noble revolt. The last significant rebellion against William started at what was called a bride's ale. Ale in those days meant party, not just a type of beer, and it's kind of somehow very appropriate to the English national characteristic that the word for party and alcohol should be the same thing. As an aside, I realise that the English reputation for drinking way too much and behaving very badly while under the influence is by no means a new thing. It's been with us since Anglo-Saxon times. And ever since those days, we've had an international reputation for it. So, for example, it was noticed that the English on the Third Crusade gave priority to their drinking. And I quote a contemporary who said, Even in the very midst of the war trumpets, they kept up the old English custom and opened their mouths wide with proper devotion to drain their goblets to the dregs. Yeah, hoy. I can't remember where I saw it, but I also remember, I'm sure, a complaint from a foreign visitor at the Tudor court complaining about how much the English drank. So it's a fine old English tradition then. I guess the excuse was, of course, that alcohol formed at such a large part of everyone's diet since the water, especially in towns, couldn't be trusted but someone somewhere worked out that beer played an important part in providing the average person with a fair proportion of their calorie intake, with something like an average intake of 300 litres a year per person, which isn't far south of a litre a day, every day. Anyway, back to the revolt of the earls. In 1075, then, two powerful families were keen to join in alliance through marriage. The two lords concerned were Roger Fitzosborne, Earl of Hereford, and the son of one of William's companions at Hastings, William Fitzosborne, and the other was Ralph de Gale, the Earl of East Anglia. Ralph is in fact as much part of the old world as the new. His family are Bretons, and part of Edward the Confessor's nobility. Anyway, they wanted Roger's daughter Emma to marry Ralph de Gale. They couldn't do so without their feudal lord's permission, which William wouldn't give. But William was away in Normandy, and had been out of the country since 1073, so they just went ahead anyway. At the bride's ale, i.e. the wedding reception, Ralph and Roger cooked up a rebellion. Partly, they feared William's wrath on his return, but Roger of Hereford was also upset because the king's sheriff had been holding court hearings on his lands. Back in Normandy, the nobility wouldn't have had to submit to this exercise of royal power, and they'd rather not do so in England either. Ralph and Roger had cunningly invited Waltheof to the bride's ale, and caught him in his cups and off his guard and persuaded him to join them. After the bride's ale was over, Waltheof had more to regret than a hangover. He'd suffered at the hands of William before and got away with it. Now he had a nice life, an influential wife, and his position as the Earl of Northumbria had allowed him to finish the family's blood feud, murdering the family of Thurbrand the Hold. Now he was in danger of throwing it all away. 
Bortheof was a strong man and a brave warrior, but he was weak-willed. He panicked. He ran to Lanfranc and threw himself on his mercy. Lanfranc excommunicated the rebels, while Wolfheof went over to Normandy and told William all about it. William was not impressed. He had no words of thanks for Wolfheof and threw him into jail. He recognised that Wolfheof might be a brave warrior, but he was weak and easily led, and always going to be trouble. And he figured he could deal with the Northumbrians himself now, and so didn't need the old Anglo-Scandinavian old guard anymore. Back in England, the revolt soon fell to pieces. The manner of its collapse was quite interesting. William's lieutenants, like Odo of Bayer, put an army in the field and faced down Ralph, who fled to Brittany. In the west, though, it was the English bishop Wolfstan and Abbot Ethelwyn who called out the third, joined with Walter de Lacy and stopped Roger from joining up with Ralph in the east. For good or ill, the English realised that they were better off supporting their Norman king than the anarchy of civil war. William took Ralph's lands and exiled him and his family. Ralph and his wife fled to Dole in Brittany, where they continued the fight, with Philip of France's help. Roger of Hereford, meanwhile, was thrown into jail for the rest of the conqueror's life. Waltheof, though, had it worst, despite his change of heart. William had had enough of the unreliable English earl. He dithered for a while, during which Waltheof apparently prayed continuously for God to forgive him. But in 1076, Waltheof, the last English earl, was beheaded, and his body thrown into a ditch. The body was later recovered by the English, and it was buried at Crowland Abbey, where it supposedly performed miracles. So now that settled it, and remaining English were out, Normans only from now on. Over the next few years, the land settlement in England was completed, but William never quite cracked his problem with the North. Waltheof was succeeded by a series of earls who couldn't cope with the job. Walcher, the Bishop of Durham, was first, he lasted until about 1080 when the Northumbrians killed him. He was replaced by a chap called Albury de Courcy, who hated it so much that in 1086 he resigned, even though he lost all his English lands as a result of William's irritation. But on the Welsh border, William was much more successful. You'll remember that last week when we talked about the way in which William parcelled England out to his followers, he did so by giving them the lands of the Anglo-Saxon thanes, whose land holdings were generally spread over different parts of the country. The exception, though, were the marcher lords. Basically, what William did was to create some big, consolidated baronies all along the border with Wales. The idea was to create a series of buffer states along the border, recognising that England and Wales were in a permanent state of low-level war. So, in particular, he created three great lordships, Chester in the north, uh, with Hugh d'Avranche, Shrewsbury, with the Roger Montgomery family in the middle, and Herefordshire, with William Fitzosborne. There were other lords with major landholdings, such as the Briouse family in Brecon. These lords were seriously powerful. They possessed all the powers of the king, except treason. They appointed their own sheriffs rather than the king. They could declare and wage war at will. Essentially, the royal writ didn't run in the marches, and their only tie was their feudal oath of loyalty to the king. They were in fact their own mini-kingdoms, and really very cool. The arrangement worked pretty well on the Welsh border, Maybe partly because Wales itself was split into relatively small princedoms. The marcher lords could also create their own forests, subject to a specific set of forest laws. A forest in those days had nothing to do with there being a lot of trees. It was an area subject to that favourite pastime of the red-blooded medieval noble, hunting. The most famous was the new forest created by William, with much pain to the local population, many of whom he chucked off their land to make way for it. 
But there were many more of them, actually, so Essex, for example, was almost entirely forest under Henry I. Now, your average Anglo-Saxon thane loved hunting every bit as much as the Normans. But along with the forest came the forest laws, which were Norman, new, and took the hunting obsession to a new level. The law made special provision to protect what was called the vert, i.e. the vegetation, and the venison, i.e. the animals themselves, specifically deer, hare, wolf and boar. The Normans introduced strict penalties for messing with any of them. Under William, you could be blinded. His son Rufus thought this was all a bit namby-pamby and upped it to include death and mutilation. Pretty much everyone except the kings hated this foreign law. The nobility hated it because it infringed their rights. The peasantry hated it because it made their lives more difficult and their lives weren't easy to begin with anyway. The church hated it because of its inhumanity and because it disregarded their own privileges too. But those kings, of course, loved it. And over the next few hundred years, you can spot a weak king because he gets forced to make concessions over his forests. King John, for example. I think that's probably enough about William for one week. We'll finish him off next time. We'll hear about his family troubles, Paul Lamb, and we must, of course, talk about the super-famous Doomsday Book and hear how William met his end at last. But as ever, thank you very much for listening and for all your kind comments and things, and thanks particularly for the questions which I found really interesting trying to answer. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 